Hello, PYP friends, and welcome back to another episode of Confessions of a PYP Teacher. I'm Lou Gerlach with ThinkChat, and welcome to Confession 109, where we're going to look at local and global inquiry in the early years. As I finished this series on local and global inquiry, I couldn't forget my early years friends. Sometimes there's so many strategies presented that are beyond the scope of our little people and what they can do. And I wanted to honor your special role in making learning come alive too. In connection to the Crafting Inquiry conference that I attended, I was inspired by the ideas of Kimberly Mitchell about asking deeper questions with our learners. And she posed a prompt that really made me think. What gets in the way of students and teachers from asking questions? And Kimberly gave some concrete reasons for why educators do not ask a wider range of questions. And I'd like to explore this further and apply these ideas to making local and global connections. Her ideas are fear, apathy, ignorance, culture, and time. So giving into fear, one of the most crippling things that educators face is fear. In the current political climate of many educational systems, particularly in my own home country, there are many that oppose our learners from exploring the world around them. As a result, many educators are afraid of going beyond the required curriculum. To those in this situation, my heart truly goes out to you. But there are still ways to honor local and global inquiry within your context without upsetting the systems around you. As we know, early years learners are naturally curious about the world and they're continuously seeking uh, patterns to create generalizations, right? And one way to explore the world around us is through what if questions. I've included a link um, to a what if game that was created in response to um, an organization called Kids Have Stress Too, and the Lawson Foundation, as well as um, the foundation, um, the, sorry, the Psychology Foundation of Canada. And it is um, a game where we ask students what ifs, and it's about, um, First, about social situations, like what if someone is playing with the toy you want? What if someone takes a toy away from you? First, we have to obviously make it relevant to um, and concrete to their own learning example. Then we can look at it in relation to the content. What if there was not enough water for plants to grow in the world? What would happen, right? And what if um, all the soil um, didn't have the nutrients it needed? What if the, not all hum uh, what if um, there was not enough resources for all humans on this planet? Now you're posing what if questions related to your content and trying to expand globally, right? And go beyond. And also what I absolutely love is a Project Zero Visible Thinking routine called What Makes You Say That? And why I love this routine is that you kind of pose a question and then have students answer it. So like one of these what if questions, right? 
Uh, what if there was not enough resources for all the humans in the world? And then children um, answer. And then you ask, well, what do you see that makes you say that? Right? What makes you say that? And then they keep going, well, what do you think really is going on? And then they talk some more. Well, how do we, you know, we just keep drilling back down to the root core and have those aha moments. It's a really powerful um, routine that I use with even adult learners in workshops. So it allows for more depth of exploration and gets the learners to come up with the ideas instead of you teaching it. And this opens up conversations about other places within our own home country, um, within around the world. And you kind of get away from this idea of teaching, you know, these things where children are exploring them on their own. Now for the next one, I combine feeling apathy and um, culture and or how it impacts culture together. For some educators, there's absolutely no cold, no constraints at all in making local and global connections in their curriculum. They just aren't interested in doing it. There's no sense of ownership of the process, so they just don't do it. I understand this feeling when there are no systems in place to make inquiry thrive in your current culture. But you can still be that shining light in a dark place. It requires, a, I'm, I'm sorry to say this, but it requires extra effort on your part, which is why so many feel apathy, right? There's no support or um, no solid culture. Then we become apathetic because, well, why should I do all of this when my colleague, you know, two classrooms down is getting paid the same and they're leaving two hours earlier than I am? That can build some sort of sense of apathy. So how do we turn this around? The thing that has universally helped me is finding a thought partner within or outside of my school community. And I don't mean a person I'm sitting there complaining with. That is not a thought partner. Thought partner is a person that you can bounce around ideas with. Now, I have specific people that I've mentioned in this podcast before, and some I haven't. Um, actually, I've mentioned all these people. My friend Vidya from India. My friend Denise, who's in Connecticut. My friend Misty, who's in Vancouver. Um, she's in Vancouver, Canada. My friend Mandrea, which is she's in the northern part of the United States. They let me ramble on, I mean, for hours, friends. Hours. But my thoughts... But what I love about them is they give me critical feedback on how to improve. Now I'm going to add another person to the list that just came to my mind is Kirsten Durwood. Um, many of you have engaged with her on Toddle. I'm going to tell you at the very beginning of the pandemic, I gave a webinar. I don't possess this copy of this webinar because I'm embarrassed. It was awful. Kirsten was in my... Um, <laughs> She was a live attendee, and basically, in a kind way, she told me, you stank, and uh, this was too much, this was too short, there was no interactivity, no uh, participation, and it gave me anxiety, because I knew I was pivoting towards um, online teaching and learning um, for the IB, and this made me anxious. So then, thankfully, 
through a wonderful woman named Dalit Halevi, who is over um, the Ivy Educator Network um, in the United in the Americas and also interim in Asia Pacific. She was talking on Facebook about a program called Click Institute. I participated in this Click Institute, which stretched me beyond my capacity or at that time. And it turned me into a very good digital facilitator. And I've practiced many hours with this program and so much so that I've transferred it to my face-to-face -face workshops. None of that would have happened my improvement probably would not have happened. Well, I knew I sank, but to hear your friend tell you you sank, you need people like that. People who are who are not being rude, but just being very critical of saying, have you considered this and this and this? Um, and, you know, because that's how we improve as uh, people. So why is this so important for me as an early years teacher? Because you're laying the foundation for all other knowledge that is acquired throughout the elementary and primary school experience. This is a huge mantle on your shoulders, but it's also not celebrated enough. When upper primary grade teachers, such as myself, right, uh, reach amazing test scores or huge growth within their learners, you know, on, you know, annual standardized testing or exams or um, t diagnostic testing. It's because of all the hard work that has been laid in the early years. Let's put it there. And it's just grown from there. Without you, it wouldn't be possible. And so we need you not to be apathetic. Remember this when you are feeling apathy come your way, right? When working with your littles. And something I do with early uh, learners to get them out of their own apathy, because we have children because of life circumstances beyond their control come very apathetic to school like why should i learn i'm not i'm in this situation i'm never going to get the situation so we're trying to build experiences that touch their hearts um because we all want to connect our own experiences so i do this though in a very scaffolded guided process because if we just let our children um as you know, go wild and wooly. They'll they'll go wild and wooly, all right. And it'll be uh, there will be no connection to your unit of inquiry at all. So the first thing that I do to corral them but get them excited is give them very thought provoking prompts. I use a lot of prompts to provoke their thinking and get them talking. These prompts come in the forms of pictures, film clips, um, or music portions of a a picture book because I that's related to your unit right getting them talking throughout the whole process I'm modeling the language of thinking I think I connect I infer I wonder so that I get my students replicating that language reflect I ask my learners to think about how the ideas we're exploring is connected to their everyday life that part is so important. We don't do that enough, especially with our littles. I wonder how this is connected to your real world because that's how they're gonna remember it because it touches the heart. And then I'm gonna stretch. I'm gonna ask them to make predictions of how they think whatever topic we're exploring looks in other parts of 
that her country, as, as we know, they have no um, relative understanding of place and time, but also the world around them. So we're going to draw our predictions and then take a, a look at provocative real world examples and compare and contrast. I envision like a big vision board where I ask them about needs of plants, for instance, right? Um, in my home country. And I'm going to have, I'm going to have them draw those pictures and then I'm going to, um, they're going to make their predictions on the other side in one color. And then once we look at real world examples around the world, then they're going to, in a second color, put what's really there. And then what's magical is a, is a third color is going to go in the middle of a combination of it all. Uh, how cool is that? We're preparing the thinking to go up and get them connected and asking them what should go in the middle, what's common, ah, fascinating, rather than us telling them. So living in ignorance, ooh, this one's a touchy subject. Not that the other ones aren't tough, touchy, <laughs> saying you're apathetic. Um, but we've all had our fair share experiences within the teaching field, even if this is our first year. I can clearly picture colleagues who will forever stay in my mind who just did not want to know about inquiry because of fear of apathy, right? And the impact on their practice. No matter how much I tried to show them, they turned their backs on me and pretended to not listen. And I just kept thinking, wow, you know, what's the imprint on their students? What are their students missing out on? I'm not saying I was perfect at all, but at least they tried. And this question has prompted, or I should say prompted something in my mind of why are they resisting good teaching practice? And every time the answer would be the same. If they learn about inquiry, they're going to have to change their practice and they don't want to change. Or they're too afraid to change because what they have is working well for them and change is scary, right? So it loops back. It's not all linear, you know, it all flows into each other. So living in ignorance is something many teachers do well. They blame it on the availability of resources or access to pro quality professional development. And this might have been true prior to the pandemic, but now it's a completely different story. You can join virtual book clubs and not have to buy the book, um, participate in webinars, online courses, go on to conferences, to name a few. And there's so many more options now that our argument of staying ignorant is invalid. So how do we get out of ignorance? Consider, I always start slow, consider joining an online chat or forum. My favorite on Twitter is called PYP chat. It's hashtag PYP chat, all one word. It happens every two weeks during the school year. We have one coming up and a group of educators from around the world get together to chat about things all PYP, which includes local and global inquiry from the early years point of view. It's free and all costs is a little bit of time to read and respond to question prompts and other people's 
um, reflections. To be honest, it has been the singular best professional development I've participated in the past two years because I have educators where I pose certain ideas and they push back and then I have to re-clarify and then they push back and then I have to provide evidence for it. And they're doing that to see how deep can I go and I love it because it really helps me to think about um, my thoughts and my practice. Check it out. Hashtag PYP chat. Now, the big kahuna I left for the end, which is time. No matter what setting you teach in, public or state school, private, international, time is the number one issue for all teachers. Just it is. So how do we battle the time crunch when there are so many expectations during the day? We've got our content, you know, our content we've got to teach. We've got um, all the elements of the PYP we've got to teach. But how do we naturally infuse them together so that while we're doing these um, discipline um, lessons, I try as much as I can to be transdisciplinary, but I wanted this one to focus more on um, bundling our time better. So what do I mean by bundling our time? What does this mean? So in the PYP, we embed as much as we can the learner profile attributes, the approaches uh, to learning, and the concepts within our content. This is a more powerful way of teaching as learners are understanding ideas within context and not replicating skills. I mean, sorry, no, they are representing and repl replicating skills that they use in the real world. We don't ever, you know, in the real world, separate how we feel or how we act and, and reflective practice from the actual doing. It's just all naturally fluid. So I want to share an example of what it might look like in, um, in an early years classroom. So imagine I'm talking to a group of students. Well, learners, yesterday we talked about what it means to be a risk taker. Just a reminder, it's a person who doesn't stop doing things because they are too scary or too hard. A risk taker knows that scary and hard things will help them to come up with new ideas and help them to grow. So we're going to stretch our thinking about being a risk taker and we are going to use risk taking skills while we are learning about reading. For some of us, reading is a scary thing because we can mix up ideas when telling what happened in a story. And to help us, we're gonna learn a new thinking skill called sort and categorize. Does anyone know what it means to sort and categorize? After a couple seconds? Yeah, it means that we put our ideas in order to make sense um, to our brain, and then we put a title on it. And remember, I've already taught them what it means to categorize, right? And I say put a title on it. We're going to use picture cards and sort them in order. Let's do it together. So I'm going to have some pictures on the whiteboard with magnets that can be manipulated around. So I'm wondering which picture is going to start off our story. Which one looks like 
it's going to show the beginning of a story. Then what comes next? And, you know, what is the ending? So I've had them sort all the cards. And once they're sorted, I'm going to ask these questions. Who can tell me the story in their own words? So now I'm getting them to come up with their own story, right? Because this is going to be a, a, a way of strengthening their ability to understand the order and the process of a story before I have them retell a story to me. So how did the characters show they were a risk taker? Now I'm embedding the language of the learner profile into this process. Hmm. I wonder if we sort the pictures again, how can it change the story? Now I'm getting them to look at the story from a new context and they're driving that process. And the last question I'm going to ask is how can um, sorting and categorizing information help us to be able to read easier, right? And now I'm reflecting on the actual skill of sorting and categorizing within practice. Next, we're going to finish looking at the story with our hearts. We remember our learning if we connect it not only to ourselves, our community, and the world. So remember our community is people that live near us. And it also can be um, people that um, we're going to talk about what community looks like. And also the world, people that live in other countries or um, other parts of the world. So who has made a connection to the story from something that has happened within with their own friends, family, um, or school. So now I'm trying to get them to connect with something that happened in the story with their own personal lives. It's with family, friends, and school. Well, now let's think about your different communities that you're in. Maybe you're on a sports team or you belong to a different type of club, or maybe you go to some sort of church or outside community group or after school program or friends outside of school how do you see this did you see something in the story that connects with any of those people because we want to build the network outside of school do we know of any other story that is similar to the one that we just made now text to text connections can we connect the story that we've just made to maybe a television show or a movie or another book that we've read? Now we're making, right? We're trying to get further and further out, right? Even more text to text. What is something that's happened in the world um, that is this kind of the same of what's happened in the story? Now text to the greater world. Hmm. Tomorrow, we're going to look at a new story and practice the same skills. I wonder what story in our class that talks about whatever the unit topic is, 
allow, okay, so I'm going to allow my learners to choose from a variety of text. So I'm going to already have a display of unit books related to social studies and science, right? Displayed. And I'm going to allow my students to pick a book that interests them. And then what, what I'm going to do is I'm going to use different pages from the picture book as sequence cards to scaffold the process of, of reading, you know. Um, so basically, I'm trying to mirror the process of using the sequence cards in those pictures and then utilizing the book as a prompt of, hmm, I wonder what's if it matches the order within the book. Now, there are numerous ways to look at local and global inquiry within your context. It's just a, about exposing your young ones to different ways of thinking. Now, another thing that I talked about in the beginning, but I didn't mention in this lesson was about concepts. Now, the concepts can be easily introduced into this. You could look at it from the whatever related concept you're doing, um, looking at, I wonder what relationships or connections or patterns, uh, whatever it might be um, that I find in this story, right? So trying to lay those concepts um, in there as well as part of one of my guiding questions so that I, may, I don't make it separate um, and make it a lesson about concepts, right? I'm doing it within content and context um, of, the, of the story itself. Now, thank you for participating in this um, series on local and global inquiry. To continue this pathway, we are going to focus on our next book club, which is called The Expert Effect and the companion book, Expert Expedition by Grayson McKinney and Zach Rondo. So be sure to um, listen to this next series for more ideas um, as we try to explore the, um, this fabulous book. So see you soon, my friends, as we continue on our journey.